Good morning, everyone. We continue our series uh, from the book of James, the title of the series being Uncomfortable Wisdom. Uncomfortable because it challenges us in our thinking, in our behaviour and in our faith. It's also uncomfortable because some of the letter does not appear to sit well with us, either because it challenges us personally too much or we just don't agree with some of it or don't want to. Over the past two weeks, Carolyn and Kat have shared with us that many people don't like this book, otherwise known as the letter or epistle of James. Carolyn, our historian, said some early church leaders and theologians did not want it included in the scriptures or the collection of writings that we call the Bible. She shared that it has been called an epistle of straw, apparently having no substance and lacking any real theology. And many say James, when he does include some theology, gets it wrong. And therefore, it has no place in our Bible, some claim. And some folks say we should ignore it. Well, I reckon today's passage highlights some of this thinking. The five statements that are throughout the particular reading that Margaret brought to us are some uncomfortable words of theology. What good is it, my brothers, sisters, if a man or woman claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him or her? Faith by itself is dead. Faith without deeds is useless. A person is justified by what he or she does and not by faith alone. And right at the end of the reading, faith without deeds is dead. On the surface of it, these statements seem to question the very thing that defines us as Christians, the faith we have in Christ, or at least it puts a condition upon it and its effectiveness. It could be interpreted that in essence, according to these statements by James, that we have to work for our salvation rather than trusting in the work of Jesus upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That, my friends, is very uncomfortable thinking indeed. But that may not be what James is actually saying or getting at. We'll examine the passage and dig behind the scenes and context a little more shortly. But please let me assure you at the outset that our faith and trust in Jesus is what's important. Who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins is absolutely valid and is all we need to be forgiven our failings and be assured of an eternal life with him and God the Father. As we sang a little earlier, it is in Christ alone that our hope is found. This is something that we'll remember and celebrate later when we share in communion. But friends, don't take my word for it, and don't take the writer of In Christ Alone, Stuart Townend's word for it. Let's take the Apostle Paul's. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Make no mistake about it. Salvation is a gift. It's not earned by us in any way, but given in grace. It's my understanding that this very apparent contradiction between what James' statements in this particular passage that we've been looking at and that assurance by the Apostle Paul, that's what's led many people to say, 
Let's get rid of James. Let's push this letter away. Well, let's look a little bit more closely at the passage. Why James wrote it, to whom, and then perhaps we'll see it in a little bit different light than first appears. Firstly, it's believed that James is the half-brother of Jesus, one of six siblings of our Lord. He led the church in Jerusalem for many years, was a key figure in the Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts chapter 15. So he knew what he was talking about. It is said his writings are more like preaching than theology, and I tend to agree. We believe he's writing to fellow believers, people who have accepted the life-saving and life-changing good news of Jesus. We believe he's writing to fellow Jews, the beginning of the book tells us, to the 12 tribes that are scattered throughout the world. He writes in loving and caring terms. He says, my brothers, I would add my sisters. He's concerned for them and wants what is best for them. In other parts of his letter, he seeks to encourage his readers in the face of persecution. He's also concerned that these fellow Jewish believers are not living as best that they can. There's problems within their fellowship. There's problems with some things they're doing or not doing, and he's seeking to address these things. We've heard over the past two weeks that he sought to address issues such as what people were saying, Words can build up, but they can also tear down. We are to show favouritism or discriminate, but treat everyone the same. I believe James is concerned that people are not living out their faith, growing in faith, trusting their faith in the one in whom they have faith, that being God, and seeking to serve him and reach others for him. It is apparent that some of the Jewish Christians spoke a lot about faith. They bragged about it, but they did not live it out. It's said that James is a bit of a nag, do this and don't do that. But I see it that he's a bit like parents or grandparents or pastors, wanting the very best for those they love and care for. I think some of the language that he uses, the questions he asks, is trying to invoke a response. Get the hearers and readers thinking and hopefully acting upon what they hear. Okay, let's look a little at the text itself before drawing a conclusion about the passage of James and wrapping up and asking the question, what does this mean for us today and into the future? Firstly, in order to get the people to sit up and take note, he asks a very confronting question. What good is it, my brothers, If a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? On the surface of it, this really looks like a problem to our notion that's been confirmed by the Apostle Paul that we're saved by grace rather than by what we do. Now, James uses an example or a story to flesh out what he's saying here to assist the understanding of that statement. He effectively says, if you see a brother or sister in need and do nothing about it, what good is it? What sort of caring for others is that? Is it going to do them any good? True care, as God would have us do, means taking some action. Good wishes and good intents can only go so far. I think James is questioning the type of faith his readers or hearers have. 
Is it really faith in a loving God and his actions of reaching out and saving us in our time of need? But when the chance comes to help another in their time of need, we do nothing? What sort of faith is that? I note James says in this part of the passage, can such faith save him? True Christian faith is not just a mental assent to or an agreement to theological doctrines, as some of his readers were doing. As James wrote earlier in his letter, we are to be hearers and doers of the word of God, and that means faith in action, real care to those who are in need. Now, faith is also deeper than just an assent, and verses 18 and 19 show this. To underline that notion that faith is more than an assent, James challenges his Jewish readers. He says, show me your faith without deeds. Presumably, you're just talking about it, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. To him, faith is not just something to talk about, but to live out. As they say, actions speak a lot louder than words. In contrast, a lot of the Jewish people of the time talked about God and their belief in him, but did not always obey or serve him. Over and over and over again, we read that in the Old Testament. And James challenges this type of thinking, and particularly their pride in declaring that there is one God by reminding them that even the demons believe that, and they shudder. But that of itself does not amount to a saving faith in God. And what Christ has done, it needs to be real, resulting in a changed life lived out. James continues in the challenge mode to drive home his notion that real faith is shown in actions. To paraphrase him, you want proof, foolish man or foolish woman? Look at history, the history of our people and our nation. And he gave them two examples from the Old Testament to back up this assertion. The first one we read about in, uh, in t- uh, verses 21 to 24. Now in Genesis 22, we read of Abraham being tested, asked to do something quite unthinkable. God was asking him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, as an offering to God. What a test for a father's faith. Now Abraham trusted God, and faithfully made all the preparations to carry this this out. But since we're a rated G audience here, I won't go into the details of that. But right at the crucial point, God stopped him and provided the sacrifice, the sacrifice that was needed, and Isaac went home with his dad. The point being made here from this example was that the faithful Abraham did not just talk about his faith, but he proved his faith and his trust in his God by his actions. Faith and actions working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. There's a second example that he gives, the sinful Rahab. She also acted in faith. We read in Joshua 2 that she defied the king's men and concealed two of God's servants. These men had come to survey the land that God had promised to his people that they were to return to after being in Egypt in a time of wilderness. She took a great risk in this, but in so doing showed that her faith and hope laid in the hands of the true God 
and his people. And she was considered righteous by what she did. Now James could have trotted out many, many other examples of people of faith from the Old Testament, which would have really spoken into the, uh, the minds and the hearts of these Jewish people. Like the writers in Hebrews chapter 11, where many, many are commended, not just because of their faith, but by faith they went and did something. And this is the point that James is trying to drill home. Faith is shown by actions. He concludes the passage, this message to the people he cares about and is trying to have grow in their faith with another rather bold statement, but one that perhaps might not sound as shocking to us now. In verse 26, he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Following on from the examples given, we can deduce that he's talking about real faith in that it is living and active and shown by what we do about it. Believers, as believers, we're not to make a mental assent to trust Jesus in his sacrifice, but to live it out. And believers are not to tuck away a confession of faith in a drawer like an insurance policy and bring it out and claim if needed. Believers are not to sit around and just talk about their faith, although that's a very good thing, but also to live it out. That is having a living faith rather than a dead faith, in James's words. Let's go back to the Apostle Paul and his conclusions. I said a little while ago that many rejected James in his letter, particularly this part of his letter, because it appears directly contrary to the great statement of salvation by faith that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. Salvation is a gift of God. It is not earned by works, but by... It's not earned by works or by what we do. But Paul continues on the next verse after this. Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. For me, our passage in James is not contrary to Paul, who is expressing it in theological terms. James is expressing it more in practical terms, cutting to the core of the issue and encouraging the people who he loves and cares about to live out their faith, to reach their potential, by seeking to put their faith in action, by doing things. Now, I don't think I'm on my own in this uh, thinking. In the New International Dictionary of the Bible, in his article on the book of James, Stephen Barabbas writes this. This section on faith and works is not against Paul's doctrine of justification or salvation by faith, but a rebuke of the prevalent Jewish notion that saving faith is mere intellectual assent to a set of theological propositions. James points out that real saving faith manifests itself in works and that if works are not there, the genuineness of the faith may be questioned. He concludes, Paul and James are in perfect harmony on their views of the relationship of faith and works in salvation. Another writer, Douglas Keneally, in his book, The Bible for Blockheads, that's particularly one of my favourite books to read, wrote that the central message of the book or the letter 
is that genuine faith in Jesus as saviour will be reflected in the life of obedience to Jesus as Lord. It's a bit like the two sides of the coin, saviour and Lord. Like every other New Testament writer, Douglas writes, James looked at faith as a looked at faith as a fundamental requirement of the Christian life. Personal belief and commitment to Jesus are the foundations upon which everything else rests. But a claim of faith alone is not enough. True faith always expresses itself in outward acts of obedience to God. Good deeds do not earn us a place in heaven, but good deeds are proof that we have a genuine commitment to Jesus. It's pretty tough stuff. For some, it's uncomfortable wisdom. But what does it all mean for you and I today and into the future? Does it mean that we're to look at other people and say to them, others, I don't see Fred or Frida doing anything around the church or around the community. I wonder if their faith is genuine. That would be wrong on so many fronts. Firstly, we don't see everything people do or don't do. Some people serve their Lord very quietly behind the scenes as a prayer warrior, a cleaner after everyone has gone home, or they serve far away from the church setting, at work or in their neighbourhood, at school or on the wider mission field. And secondly, it would be wrong because we are not to judge others. That's God's job. He is all, he sees all, he hears all. But like we should after every sermon, every Bible study, every devotion when we dip into God's word, we are to examine ourselves in light of the text. Not about what others say about the text, but what we believe God is saying to us through the text. In this passage of James and supported uh, and supported by and not contradictory at all to the teachings of the Apostle Paul, I believe each of us should be wrestling with questions along the life lines of this. Is my faith in Christ and what he has done for me sincere? Is it deep? And is it mature enough to be making a real change in my life? Also, am I serving God, doing things, works and deeds, whatever that might be called, that he's prepared for me and prepared me for in order to make a difference for his kingdom and his glory. For many of us, friends, this is uncomfortable wisdom, but we need to grapple with it. We might not be doing anything or very little with the skills, experience and resources God's blessed us with. For others who are busy doing things, we might need to question what are we actually doing and why? Are we doing it to earn our place in heaven? We better think again. We can't do that. If we are serving doing things as a result of our outworking of our faith, we might need to sit before God and evaluate the things we do. Are they the very things that God's prepared for us to do? Sometimes we might be so busy doing things for God and doing things in God's name, we can lose perspective on this. My wife has a great saying. She says, we have to be able to say no to good things in order to be able to say yes to the best. 
And the best is what God is calling us to do with conviction. There are lots of good things we can do. We can be busy all the time doing good deeds and works, but are they the right ones? Are they most effective for God's kingdom in sharing his love and message of salvation with others? We can pick up on the examples from our passage. We can't feed and care for everyone, but if called to, we can care for one or some. We probably won't be asked to sacrifice our son, but we may be asked to, or called to sacrifice, give up or give away something else that's precious. We probably won't be asked to hide spies and defy the rulers of the day, but we may be asked to take risks to serve God in some situations and places. What to do? The simple thing is to sit before God and ask him. Where might we go to find out what sort of things we can be involved in? We need to talk to those in the church that we trust. There's been an excellent <coughs> note document put together of people that have stepped up leading ministry areas during our, um, our time where our pastoral resources are limited. There's some great opportunities there to serve. I'm sure folks would love to uh, talk to you about what you might be able to do in those areas if God is leading and calling you into that. I've got to say to you that is a wonderful thing that's happened in the life of our church. A great thing to see. The challenge will be for us all to continue to do the task that God is calling us to do way into the future and release others to do ministry that they're called and led to in other ways as well. Serving God and doing things he calls us to do can be very daunting. We can doubt if we have the ability, the strength. When I'm in that situation, and I have been many times in 30 years of ministry, I hold on to two assurances. I figure that since I can trust God with my eternal destiny, I can trust him with everything in the here and now. And also, I know that wherever God calls, he enables and he blesses. Friends, I wonder if there's someone here today that's perhaps wondering what this, work, this talk of faith is all about. Well, it's simply having faith and trust in Jesus as our saviour. Accepting that we are all sinners and do things or say things that do not please God. And accepting and believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That he rose again to show that the punishment for those sins, for those who believe and trust in him, have been dealt with. And we can look forward to living with him and God in heaven when our earthly life is finished. That's what will be shared very shortly as we come around the communion table together. To any people in doubt this morning, I ask this question. Have you accepted Jesus as your saviour and are trusting upon his death upon the cross for your salvation? If your answer is yes, then you are a person of faith, a Christian, and should be looking for ways to honour and serve him and continue to grow in that faith. But if you're a person this morning that answers no to that or are unsure, I encourage you to find out more. Today is a good day. You can talk with me, you can talk with Kat, you can talk with 
people will be out the front for prayer after the service. I encourage you, if you're in that situation, don't leave here this morning without talking to someone about what it means to place your faith and trust in Jesus as Saviour. It's an absolutely life-changing experience. Finally, as I close, you might be saying, there is so, so much to do. I can't do much. What difference can I do? When I think that way, I'm reminded of the story of the starfishes on the beach. A young man walking along the beach in low tide, tossing starfishes that have been washed up back into the sea, hoping some of them will survive. And a man comes up to him and says, what are you doing? He said, I'm tossing starfishes back into the sea to give them a chance to survive. What difference are you going to make? There's thousands of starfish along the beach. He picked up one starfish and he said, I'm making a difference to that one. And another one, I'm making a difference to that one. I wonder, friends, what is God calling you and I to do to make a difference for someone else, to make a difference for his kingdom? And it's to his glory and honour I say, Amen.